Second Sunday of Advent, uh, this sermon series is quickly coming to an end. We've been taking a journey through Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, a gospel family tree, if you will, and showing how these people aren't just dads and granddads and grandmas and all these different things, that they're, many of them, large amounts of them are included because their stories and the arc of their stories actually inform uh, what Jesus came to do and came to ultimately fulfill. And so last week, if you were with us, we talked about the story of David. And in many ways, David is kind of the climax of the whole genealogy. Uh, the genealogy starts with David. David's right in the middle. And if you, if you read the, the Hebrew number system and, and different things like that, you can read that genealogy and understand that everything is pointing to David in Matthew's genealogy. Everyone else is important, but David's really important. And then it kind of ends with David because at the very end it gets to talking about Joseph. We'll talk about this uh, in two weeks. That David, that Joseph is from David. right? So David to start, David in the middle, and David at the end. Uh, we saw why. Because David was the, the king God chose for his people and gave to him a, an eternal covenant promise that he would sit on the throne forever. And yet we saw in David a brokenness that meant that we needed to look beyond David for a son of David. And the immediate answer to that looking for a son of David is a guy named Solomon. If you're familiar uh, at all with the Old Testament, uh, the history of Israel, you've probably heard the name Solomon before. And some of the stories that we'll talk about today might even be familiar for you as well. But let's center ourselves by looking at this genealogy again. We'll start with the first verse of Matthew chapter 1. It says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And skip into verse 6. It says, And Jesse was the father of King David, right? Even the way that David is, has a king before him, right? And David was the father, father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife, right? The including of Uriah and of Bathsheba to show the brokenness of the David story. So we have to ask ourselves, who is this Solomon guy? And why is his storyline so central to understanding who Jesus is? And I think there are four things, four broad realities to the story of Solomon that we're going to touch on this morning that hopefully will give us points of reference to understand his storyline. Obviously, we can't go into depth on any of them. Uh, his story is broad and significant, uh, so I encourage you, as I have been uh, throughout the series, to do some devotional reading in some of these passages and uh, dig into it a little bit more uh, as you go along. Uh, but to sort of center ourselves in the text, I, I want to read um, a passage of Scripture from 1 Kings chapter 3. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn there. If not, we'll have it on the screens for you, no problem. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, we'll read all the way through verse 15. And while this really centers around one big part of the Solomon story, it kind of gives us a sense of the whole part, of the whole thing. So Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married uh, his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. 
Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense in the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, wouldn't you like to have a dream something like this, right? Or how about not a dream? How about just a reality? And Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father. By the way, that word kindness, Hebrew word hesed, I always stop and and highlight that word whenever we read it in Scripture because it's a central word to understanding who God is uh, all throughout Scripture. Kindness is this the loving fidelity of God to His people. Right? So he says, I, I see that in you, God. Uh, and you've, been, you've shown it to, to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. So kindness to David continues because Solomon is now king. Verse 7, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for, a discerning, for discernment in administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal amongst kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. And he returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. The Word of God. So you have this central story to Solomon, but it sets the stage for for the different things I want to talk about. The first reality of Solomon that we need to understand, we don't need to harp on this for very long because it's kind of obvious, is that Solomon is a son of David, right? This becomes super important because you remember that God had promised to David that your, uh, your, your children, your descendants will sit on this throne forever. But that promise comes into question, right? Uh, not legitimately into question, but David dies, so what's going to happen? It's time to see if this promise is really going to be delivered. And there's actually fights over the throne, even internal familial fights. Imagine that, right? We can't even imagine that, can we? And Solomon is anointed king, and God has kept 
His promise. We see in Solomon the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And Solomon even sees it that way because he says, listen, the reason I'm here is because you're showing your covenant kindness and faithfulness and loyalty to my father David. So you have in Solomon what we can hope will be the answer to the question we left last week. That is, okay, it can't be David. We need a son of David. And so if you're just reading the narrative and not seeing all the, all the way to the end, right, putting Jesus aside for just now, you're saying, could this be? Could this be the answer? The one who's going to finally bring peace that never ends and have justice in His rule over the whole kingdom. And the story is really shaping up pretty well. Right? Because the second part the second big thing we need to talk about in the storyline of Solomon is that when God asks him to say, Give, tell me what you want, he asks for wisdom. Right? And if we're just the regular people in the kingdom, and I'm, that's what I've been trying to help us understand, that's usually who we are in these storylines, right? That's good news for all of us. You see that? Solomon isn't just asking for something for himself. He's asking something so that he can lead the people in the right way. God Himself shows that by saying, listen, I'm pleased in what you've asked for. You've been asked for something for yourself. You've asked for wisdom so that you can lead with righteousness or justice is the word that's there. And our hope is growing in us if we're people in the land of Israel in the day. Solomon, he could be the answer to this great promise that God has given David. But let's kind of set the scene for this, because here, this really is the story that we're going to dig into a little bit and kind of is going to govern our time together. Uh, there's a couple of things that are going on here that are significant. The first is that Solomon is very self-aware. This is important, because I don't think all the time, unless you're very different than me, I don't think all the time we're particularly self-aware people, are we? We kind of think something, but the truth is a mangled mess of what we actually think is happening. But you have in Solomon someone who has absolute clarity in this moment. Now, I would subscribe or I would submit to you that this is the reason God comes to him in a dream, right? <laughs> so he's not doesn't have his his uh, awake flesh mixing with <laughs> the truth of the matter. Solomon speaks bluntly and truthfully. And Solomon's personal assessment of himself is I got no shot Right? You read it the same way I do? He's like, this people is huge, and I'm following in the footsteps of David. I know he's my dad, but like, you expect me to do that? I mean, all the stories of David, Goliath, and, and, and the Philistines, and, and all of the other stories of David? You, can you imagine being Solomon? Like, at one level, it's like, oh, cool, I'm king. And at another level, it's like, I don't want this job probably. Right? And Solomon feels that. And he's honest. It's incredible self-awareness. It says, listen, I'm like a little child. That's the language he uses, right? He wasn't a little child, but he's speaking about his helpless state. Does it make sense? He understands that he has no capacity in his own strength to do the thing that God has called him to do. And what he's asking for on every level is is dependence on God and therefore the dependability of God to him to see this through. 
Now listen, friends. It should not surprise us that God delivers powerfully in the midst of Solomon's self-awareness. Right? Jesus talks about the same thing. If you ask for what you really need, I give it to you. Right? We rarely ask for what we really need because we have a misaligned view of reality. But Solomon sees it exactly as it is. But something that's even more powerful to me than Solomon's self-awareness is God's grace. Think about this for a minute. God comes to Solomon. Solomon didn't ask for this audience with God. God came to him and sought him out. God initiated the conversation with a bold statement, right? And it should not be lost on us that when Solomon seems naive or uh, like a deer in headlights, if that might be a way to describe it, uh, God sees him exactly the same way. God's like, yes, I assess you the same way you assess yourself in this moment. In fact, if you read the first couple of verses of chapter 3 critically, you understand Solomon has already had some significant missteps. Right? He's not walking into this encounter with God crystal clean. He's already married a foreign wife. God has said, don't do that. Right? The whole thing starts with that. Him trying to marry a foreign wife. Why? So he can make a treaty with someone else. Not dependent upon God. Trying to do it in his own power. And the Hebrew language that uses the word, the, the Hebrew uh, word accept twice, right? Solomon was really good except that he worshiped, worshiped in the high places, right? And if you, if you read this, this passage well, you understand he starts worshiping the high places, he ends worshiping at the Ark of the Covenant. Things get straightened out. Does it make sense? That Solomon is looking in all the wrong places, and God still meets him there. Many of us have a wrong impression of God. That we've got to get it all cleaned up and all right, and then God will speak to us. Here you have Solomon. The only two things we know about him are two strikes against him, right? And God says, hey, what do you need? In essence, how can I help? The combination of God's gracious pursuit with Solomon's self-awareness, equals radical transformation. The formula doesn't change anywhere else through the entire Bible, friends. If you're honestly seeking transformation in your life, it's God's gracious pursuit married with your honest self-awareness that unlocks real transformation. And so Solomon famously asks for wisdom, and God gives it to him. Right? Uh, it goes on in chapter 3 to have the, tell the famous story about the two women who are arguing over whose baby is, belongs to. And Solomon says, we'll cut the baby in half. Right? What a strange thing to say. Uh, and one woman says fine, the other woman says no, and he, he sorts it all out. And if you go on further in the next chapters, you realize that this wisdom that Solomon has given is not just about discernment. Like, he's like teaching nature lessons uh, and giving uh, astronomy lessons to people. Like, this idea of wisdom is that he's super smart. <laughs> he knows everything about everything. And, and it's, about, it's about animals and plants and things like this. It's very much rooted in creation. It's creational knowledge, which I think is significant. But isn't it fascinating that this is the thing he asked for? Well, here's what I want to suggest to you, friends, is that we actually don't read this passage correct. Solomon never asks for wisdom. 
Do you know that? He asked for what's translated here, a discerning heart. Uh, that's actually not even the best of translation. If you want to be super literal in the Hebrew language, what Solomon asked for is a heart that hears. Right? It's a Hebrew word, Shema. You ever heard that word before? Deuteronomy 6, right? Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad, right? This idea of hearing, a heart that hears. He wants a tender heart that hears. What's he asking for? He's asking for a heart that can hear from God. But the word Shema doesn't just mean hear, it means hear and do, right? It's a hearing that activates into action. So he's asking for two things in this moment. He's asking to have a proximity and tenderness to hear from God, but also to do the things he hears from God. Do you see it? This is what he's asking for, not wisdom. Now, uh, God says, I'm going to give you wisdom. And when, when that word wisdom shows up there, it's a different word. right? That's one of the reasons, ways we know that this is different. It's something God adds <laughs> to the mixture. It's an incredible reality. Friends, what I want to say to you again, like, and it says God is pleased. That it always challenged me for years before I, you know, read this in the original language. That oh, Solomon asked for wisdom, and God was pleased with that. Interesting. So if we kind of unlock this and ask for exactly the right attribute, God will be pleased, and then He's going to give us all kinds of stuff, right? This kind of story goes, isn't it? But it's not. What Solomon actually asked for is that he can hear what God wants him to do and do it. How could God not be pleased with that? You mean you want to do the things I'm calling you to do? You got it. Right. Now, we'll talk in a second. That does not mean that if you pray that prayer, you suddenly will be given all of the wealth and the wisdom that Solomon was given. Something is different there. We'll talk about that in a second. But this is the kind of prayer that God wants us to pray. Right? This is a prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is Jesus saying? Hey, the things you're saying and doing up there, let me hear and do down here. That's the prayer God wants to answer. That's the prayer that Solomon prays. What an incredible prayer. God, give me a heart, a love that shamas that hears. Incredible. And so God says, I love it. I'm going to give you all these things. And power and wealth and all these other things. We've got to read this properly though, friends. Right? Who is Solomon in this moment? He's a king, but we understand through the storyline of David that he's a representative king for who? He's standing in the place of God for the people and for the nations. Does this make sense? So what God is actually saying to him hey, is, hey, if you're going to actually be about the things I'm saying and doing, my glory's on display here, then let's let my glory be on display here. Does it make sense? That all these things that happen are meant to be for the glory of God, not for the glory of Solomon. Now, you've read the Old Testament, you know this is going to get messed up, right? Because <laughs> this is what always happens. Same way as it happens in our lives. But all of these things are meant to show the nations that the God of Israel is superior and look at the king who reigns over them. Solomon asks for a heart that hears. Incredible. And then on the heels of this, the third part of the Solomon story that becomes significant for us is that Solomon becomes the one 
who builds a house for God. Solomon is the temple builder. There have been three temples in uh, the life, the livelihood of, of Israel. The one that, that Solomon builds, the one that is built on their return from exile um, by uh, Haggai, Zerubbabel, those kind of folks. And then the one that Herod updates. Right? And none of them come close to the glory and the splendor of the temple that Solomon builds. Israel's always trying to get back to the Solomon temple. In fact, Herod tried to do that because the people didn't really like him and he thought this would be a way to get them on their side, but they would always say to him that your temple is nothing like Solomon's temple, right? Stab him right in the gut and twist that knife. And so he builds this incredible, beautiful, splendid temple for God uh, and God speaks to him in, in 1 Kings chapter 6. So the word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you follow my decrees, are you catching that? This keeps happening. Observe my laws and keep all my commands and obey them. I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. That is, okay, it's coming. This is going to be it. Solomon's the one. And I'll live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Incredible. Did you catch the language in there though? Conditional language, wasn't it? If... Did you catch that same language in 1 Kings chapter 3? I'm going to give you all these things. Oh, and by the way, if you actually do what you hear, then you'll have a long life. What's he saying when he asks, tells him you have a long life? Um, at some level, I'm guessing, maybe even an eternal life, right? Or maybe it's just meant to be an ancestry kind of descendant thing. It could go either way. But the idea is this thing is going to be forever and ever and ever and it's going to be glorious and it's going to mean peace and justice and prosperity for all the people. This is what this is about. So Solomon finishes the temple. It takes him, uh, I think, like seven years. Like this incredible construction process that he builds this temple and he, he brings in all these cedars from Lebanon, right? And and gold plates the inside of, uh, of uh, the, the most holy place. And, and it's, just, it's luxurious and beautiful if you can read it through a, a Days of Solomon kind of way, right? And at the end of it, this is what happens. And you, get, you just gotta have to picture yourself if you were an Israelite in the days of Solomon as king, right? You know the stories. You were slaves in Egypt. You were called back. God was going to give you this land, this land that He promised hundreds of years ago to Abraham, your, your greatest descendant. And, and now there's going to be the king who rules over it, and, and I'm going to come dwell with you. But to this point, God's been living in a tent out back, right? Inside a box. But now, His house is ready. And this is what happens. Imagine being there. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. Are any of you old enough to remember the Fog Bowl? If you're Eagles fans, right? Do you remember that? The playoff game that was robbed from us in Chicago because the clouds came in and no one could see each other? You should, you should YouTube it, right? They were throwing passes in the midst of it. You couldn't see anything anywhere. Don't leave it to me to relate this beautiful moment <laughs> to an Eagles loss. All right. The priest could not perform the service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. It's all-encompassing. It's covering everything. 
incredible. That God is there. Like He had been there, but now He's there. And it is present to everyone. What would it have felt like to see that happen? To see God fulfilling all of these promises. Solomon would uh, go on, uh, or maybe even previously, brag to some of the other kings that he would meet and say, listen, my, my dad fought a lot of wars to gain this land, but I'm reigning over a time of great peace. He kind of says it, by the way, but like that's exactly right. That's the very thing that God had promised. Peace and prosperity and justice. and It's coming through Solomon's rule. But the fourth part of the story is a little bit reminiscent of his father David. Except it's far worse. Solomon becomes a colossal failure, just like his dad. This kingdom, this promise that is coming through right before his eyes, and yet things go radically astray. Listen to how the writer describes it. King Solomon, however, (laughs) loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Remember we said that started off the chapter 3, right? But that wasn't enough. He loved many women. Wait wait till you see how many. Uh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. Now, if if you read any of the Old Testament history of coming into the land and the enemies of Israel, they're all listed right there. These are the people God has said, don't be connected to. There were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Now, isn't it interesting? There's that word lav, Hebrew, heart, again. Fascinating. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. I don't even know how that's possible. And 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. Now let's pause and leave that, go back to that verse real quick. You could read this in a patriarchal sense and say, oh, the women led him astray. That's not what the author means. Right? We know that, don't we? We know that, right? This is Solomon's doing. What God is saying is that their cultures and the gods and goddesses they worshipped became the things that Solomon would turn his attention to. It's not that it's their fault. They did it. It's Solomon's fault. Verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Man, 
what could have been and what actually was. Friends, you know how this goes. It didn't just happen that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It didn't just happen that he started worshiping other gods. This happens in a process. It does not happen in a vacuum. And if you read the bits and pieces of the story that we didn't have time to read this morning, you'll pick up on it. It's happening over time. It starts right after Solomon finishes building God's temple when he turns to build his own house. And if you get into the ancient Hebrew measurement system, you'll find out one's bigger than the other. And it's probably the wrong one. Right? Solomon builds a house a little more luxurious than the house of God. And then, all of a sudden, all these foreign kings and queens are coming to like drool over Solomon. Right? And there's the famous story of the Queen of Sheba who comes up and says, I've heard you're so wise. Teach me your ways. And he does tricks for her. You know, he tells her things about plants and whatever. And she gives him all of these things. And you can almost feel it building inside of him. The arrogance and the pride of what he has. And all these people are swooning and worshiping over his wisdom and his glory and his stature. And then there's this interesting verse that's just kind of tucked away in there. It says, and oh, by the way, every year Solomon got 666 talents of gold. Now, the writer, you know, is not just highlighting the income of Solomon. The writer is making a particular point. You probably don't have to have been in the halls of the church for any length of time to know that 666, not a great number, Right? It's a number that's associated with evil. <laughs> in fact, the devil. The writer's making a point that allegiances have changed here. Not allegiance to the devil. Allegiance to himself. And all through, you'll hear hearing this word heart. That Solomon had prayed for a heart that hears and obeys God. Well, Solomon's heart never stops hearing. It just starts listening to the wrong voices and obeying them. You see it? Friends, power and status and a lust for them will always pull you towards moral and faith compromise. If it happens to Solomon, you better believe <laughs> it happens to people like you and me. You might say, well, power and status. Look at who am I? I'm just a doing my everyday life. I'm just an everyday person. No, 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 no. We all hold on to power and status in multiple ways in our lives. Whether that's through the stuff we own or possess, nothing wrong with it, right? We know nothing's wrong with it because God gave a ton of stuff to Solomon. Or whether it's the relationships we have and the status that that brings us. And what happens is when we begin valuing the things rather than the God who provides our affection changes. And the thing that we love is the thing that we hear. And therefore, the thing that we obey. And you don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to obey this thing now. It's not how it happens, right? Otherwise, none of us would fall into these traps. It's slow, and it's gradual, and it's over time. And six months down the road, or a year down the road, or two years down the road, you wake up and you're like, what the heck? 
Or more likely than not, you don't because you can't see it. Someone has to come up next to you and say, what's going on here? And usually we say, what are you talking about? Because we're so consumed in it. And many of these things at some level are good things. Things like vocation. Even things like family. Things like planning for the future. But as we say all throughout our journey through the Scriptures, just because it's good doesn't mean it's the best. And my guess is, if we have an honest self-assessment this morning, if we have a Solomon while he's sleeping kind of moment, we'd have to acknowledge we have hearts that hear many of the wrong voices. And we obey them. The voices of our flesh, the voices of the world. We have 700 foreign wives and 300 concubines. They're just different things. iPhones and 401ks and sporting events and kids' education and promotions at work and all of these other things. And we're following hard after all of them. And Jesus says, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will fall into place. But we don't live that way, do we? We have hearts that don't hear and obey. Well, that hear and obey the wrong things too often. We end up in similar messes, just far less public. <laughs> Think, you ever stop and praise God that your life is not recorded in the pages of Scripture? <laughs> for everyone to read and for people to preach sermons about. They don't be like that person. And so we're left again saying, okay, if not Solomon, then who? And if you keep reading farther in chapter 11, God actually says, listen, I've seen the future. And this kingdom's coming to an end. He says, I'm going to rip it out of your grip. He says, I won't do it in your lifetime but in your sons I will. Because it's going to continue to be the same kind of stuff. And so then for the rest of their history, the people of Israel are looking and longing for a son of David who finally could bring peace and rule with justice, who would have a heart that heard only from God and did the things of God and therefore led them to peace and justice and prosperity. And Matthew has a message for the people. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David. That Jesus is the answer. He's the ultimate Son of David. He's the one who's going to bring a forever kingdom of peace and justice to this world. But all too often, the people of Israel, just like us, are more interested in coming to someone like Jesus for show and tell than for worship that results in peace. You remember the stories? The people would come to Jesus. Why? Because He was healing people and casting out demons and doing these great things. Kind of like the Queen of Sheba coming up to see what Solomon could do, right? And all too often, that's how we connect to Jesus, isn't it? We roll in to see what you can do for me in this moment. 
And then they have the audacity, if you remember this story in Matthew 12, to say to Jesus, hey, give us a sign. And Jesus is like, I've been giving you signs left and right. And then Jesus answers them like this. Listen to this. He says, listen, the queen of the south, to translate Sheba, right? Queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus knows who he is. He's the ultimate Solomon. The fount of all wisdom. The source of peace. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul in writing to the church at Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, says that Jesus is the fount, the treasure, the source of all wisdom. It's all held in Him. If you want to make sense of this world and of this life and find true purpose and meaning in your existence, that's the place to come to. And oh, by the way, Jesus builds the ultimate temple. (laughs) This is a fascinating story in John chapter 2. Maybe you remember it. Where Jesus and his disciples are in the temple. And Jesus, you know, he stirs up some trouble because he turns over the tables and he says, listen, things are corrupt in this temple. It's basically what he's saying. Uh, And it's a small demonstration of something greater that he intends to do, not physically to a temple, but spiritually. He says, listen, we'll destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. People never forgot that he said that because they brought it up at his trials before Pilate and the other people. Like That was a huge... What was he saying? Tear it down and build it up in three days. What was he saying the temple was? Him. He's the temple. You see it? If the temple is the means by which the presence of God comes in power to earth, then there's never been a greater temple than Jesus. The splendors, the beauty, the gold, the cedars of Solomon's temple pale in comparison to the human, or excuse me, the humanity of Jesus. God amongst his people. In the days of Solomon, you had to make it to the temple from wherever you lived. That's quite a voyage. And then, depending upon who you were, you could only get so far, right? If you were a foreigner, mm, stop here. If you were a woman, stop here. If you were a Jewish man, stop here. If you were a priest, stop here. And If you were a high priest, you could get into the holiest place, but only once a year, and you better be perfect or you're going to drop dead right there. Right? Beautiful, but super scary. Jesus shows up, and it says, listen, here I am. Right in your house for dinner. Right at your big wedding feast, turning water into wine. Right here, raising your daughter from the dead. Right here, healing your sickness of 12 years. In Jesus, the temple of God takes on a whole new thing. A whole new reality. What's more, Jesus becomes the full embodiment of the temple in His death and resurrection. Do you remember, at the moment Jesus breathes His last, what happens? That thick curtain that separated the holiest place from everyone's place. Remember, it was ripped in half. The presence of God is now unleashed to the world. 
And then when the women come and find the resurrected Jesus, well, they find the empty tomb, not the resurrected Jesus. Do you remember what they find? They find this interesting setting with the, the, the bench where Jesus had been laid inside the tomb. Like the, the garments are still there. And there's two angels sitting on either side of it. Well, if you know anything about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, this is exactly what it looked like, right? Two cherubim on either side of it and the holy presence of God in the middle of it. This isn't just, oh, there's two angels here. That's so interesting. No, no, no. This is the temple, right? And I don't mean the empty tomb temple. The, the, the resurrection unleashes the temple, unleashes the presence of God to the people all around them. Don't you understand? This story of what Solomon could have been is exactly the story of what Jesus is. And though Solomon falls into ultimate corruption because his heart wanders from God, we hear Jesus continually saying things like this in the Gospel of John. Hey, listen, I'm only saying the things I hear my Father saying. I'm only doing the things I see my Father doing. That's weird language to us, right? Is he having an out-of-body experience? Well, maybe. But what he's basically saying is, I've got a heart that hears God and does it. And as Christians, we rightly believe that Jesus lived his earthly life uncorrupted by sin. Not because he wasn't in the presence of it 24-7, because he was. But fully uncorrupted by it. Which makes him worthy of receiving this kingdom of peace and justice. But Jesus does something far greater than Solomon could have ever conceived. He turns and takes the corruption of humanity and welcomes it on His own shoulders so that the kingdom of peace and justice could be received by anyone who would meet Him at the ark of the empty tomb of resurrection. No greater verse in all of Scripture than 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin. Why? For us. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is not just a statement about justification, though it is. We've been made right if we're joined with Jesus. This is a statement about entering into a kingdom of righteousness. Having access to the peace and the internal prosperity and the justice that God had always promised His people. Jesus is the ultimate Solomon. So then who are we? Well, just like in the story of David, we're regular Joes, right? We're regular people in this kingdom. We're regular Israelites in that day. And we're just looking, aren't we? I mean, are you being honest with yourself? You're looking and you're longing for a couple of things, especially in these days. Could we get some peace? Wouldn't that be nice, right? And I'm not just talking about like lack of hostility. I'm talking about the biblical sense of wholeness. Can we get some justice? Or do we just have everyone out for themselves in this corrupt world and in my corrupt heart? And can we grow to be the kind of human beings that God has always longed us to be? Long for us and desired for us, intended for us to be.
And the Gospel writer Matthew says to people who are looking for kings and queens in this world, let me introduce you to Jesus. So the application of a sermon like this for you and me is pretty simple. Stop following other kings and queens that promise peace and righteousness and prosperity and all of these things. They end up like Solomon. Follow Jesus. Give yourself to Him. Or as the great Christ, many of the great Christmas carols often say, come and see this newborn King. Jesus King at His birth. But we don't just come. We come and we worship. Take you back to 1 Kings chapter 3. How does Solomon respond to an incredible interaction with God? He goes right to the Ark of the Covenant and he worships. And the Bible is implicit always that as God reveals Himself to us, the only right response is worship. And worship does not just mean singing, though that's wonderful and important and good. It means submission. It means bowing to the Lordship and the greatness of God. It means having a heart that shamas, hears, and obeys. If you're longing for peace, if you're longing for justice, pray the prayer of Solomon. Lord, give me a love that shamas, a heart hears, and obeys, and follows hard after King Jesus. I pray with you.